Hello, Fempreneurs. Today's episode is another powerful interview with one of the women in our community who has been an absolute, just bright, shining light to so many of the women here. Uh, Cynthia Hamilton Urquhart, I had the pleasure of, of introducing her to all of you on the podcast about a year ago. So this episode is going to bring you up to speed on what you've been up to, but she's also going to go back and share her story again which is so, so powerful. Cynthia is a retired RCMP officer. I had the pleasure of meeting her here in, uh, in Calgary through a fantastic vocal coach named Emma Rushton, and you can find her at rocketvocalstudios.com. Uh, she is actually, yeah, Cynthia's vocal coach, and Cynthia and I were connected through Emma, and it's just been magical and amazing ever since. Cynthia is working on her book, a memoir about her life, which is going to just have so much incredible, powerful, uh, I always use the word meat. I'm trying not to use the word meat as much anymore, but it's going to have so much good stuff in it to help you through the trauma that you are maybe currently dealing with, or if you're dealing with someone who has PTSD, which is what Cynthia and her husband have been dealing with since many years of dealing of working as RCMP officers. So if any of that is, uh, is stuff that is part of your life, you're going to want to check out her book and you're going to want to listen to this podcast episode. All right, let's dive in. Well, I'm so happy to have you here sharing your story of, you know, experiencing a lot of ups and downs through your career as a police officer, an RCMP officer, serving our wonderful country for 20, over 25 years. Um, so when I met you over a year ago, you were getting ready to dive into the world of social media. You were ready to share your message. So my first question for you is just tell me about yourself. Like, tell people a little bit about you. Who I am? Well, I am... Um a woman who worked for the RCMP for 25 and a half years. I've been married for 24 years to a wonderful man who was also an RCMP officer for 35 and a half years. And we have a five wonderful adult children now uh, and five grandchildren. And my world has been very, very interesting. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I realized that people actually want to hear about it. So I actually from New Brunswick and the Maritimes. My family dynamic was different than a lot of people. I had an older sister who was 17 years older and a brother who was older. And my brother and I were adopted. We weren't biologically connected, but um, he was still my sibling. And my brother, my parents were older. They went through the MPS syndrome and decided that they wanted to add more children. I was very fortunate that uh, I was one of those children. I was adopted at a very young age and I grew up, my brother had a lost, completely lost his eyesight by the time he was nine. And why that's important is that I learned at, a, at an early age that kids could be cruel and he struggled as a disabled child in early seventies. So I tried to look after him. I got into fights with other kids and I learned an empathy and um, felt like I had a responsibility to look after people that were struggling and couldn't look after themselves. And, and so I this sense of um, compassion and that I wanted to be able to help. My sister was a nurse, so also played into it. It really um, contributed to my choice of becoming a police officer eventually. At the same time, I was 
1963. So I'm one of the last years of the baby boomer, boomer generation. And our generation, we were the, the women that were rejecting the traditional way of doing things. And we wanted to, to have our own autonomy. We wanted to take ownership of who we were and the things that we could do. So those influences were there um, throughout my years of growing up and when I went into university. And it played a big part of um, where I am today and how I decided to live my life. So it was, um, it was quite the journey. And when I went into the RCMP, women had only been in policing uh, for 11 years. So we were still trailblazers um, in the RCMP, especially with its, its historical um, uh, or the history that it had here in Canada in terms of being a male-only police force. And uh, so with that, certainly many challenges um, came our way and we worked, we worked through them. Um, and that's who I am. And so today um, I'm continuing to serve, but serving the public um, in a non-official format as an advocate for mental health. Wow, awesome. Thank you uh, for sharing all of that. I would like to know more about your RCMP career and both the memorable and the difficult times. Sure. I was in the RCMP for 25 and a half years. Um, over the span of my career, I moved nine times and lived in five different provinces. So I actually had the opportunity to police in some bigger city settings and uh, rural settings as well. And, and I preferred the rural settings. Um, I liked the idea of being able to be part of a, of a smaller community and able to establish with the public and the relationships that we were able to establish. So most of my, what I would call rural policing done back in the Maritimes. And with that, um, there was lots of great moments in my policing career being able to help women who were victims of domestic um, abuse, seeing that I was able to make a difference on, on probably, for some people, what was the worst day of their life. These types of things, they, they weren't necessarily things I thought of, but I realized the impact. As a female, I police differently than um, men did. And mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in my career where I was trying to figure out or trying to be like the men until I finally recognized that I was able to police um, police from a, a female perspective. And that's what made um, bringing women into the police force that much um, more important. So I can give you an example of um, an instance where we had an individual who didn't want to get out of the police car. He was a, um, a suspect that had been involved in a violent incident. And so the other members that were at the scene, sorry, were trying to get him out of the vehicle. I was able to it was a frozen TV dinner that we had in our cell area. But, um, and not only did I offer him that meal, I offered him two meals. I said I would give him two. So he actually got out of the vehicle and followed me into the secure area that we needed him to be in. And it could be an advantage. Um, showing up and not being male, um, men didn't seem to be as intimidated um, as they would be if it was another, another male. It didn't always work, but it certainly brought a very different dynamic. To, to the conversation. So those things, those things were great. I think one of the biggest challenges for me was when I recognized that I was going to be treated differently because I was female. I wasn't prepared for that. My parents, even though they were, they were born in 1919 and 1923, they didn't hold those traditional ideas of 
um, the woman does this and the man does that. They were very forward thinking for their time. And yeah, I was very surprised by the fact that I wasn't just another member, but I was a female member. And so moments like that were, were actually quite frustrating for me. And I wasn't quite sure how to deal with it. So that was one perspective. Another was that um, there was no time for self-care. There was no, no conversations about mental health or the impacts that traumas may have on us. Now, at the time, I, that wasn't something in my mind because I never thought about it either. But those were moments where um, we would deal with difficult circumstances and then tuck them away, keep moving on. And things were going on that we didn't recognize. And I think when I look back on it now, it's actually um, kind of sad that we didn't have those freedoms. We, mm-hmm. back in those days, we didn't fall under occupational health and safety in Canada until the 1990s. So uh, it was very normal for us as a rural um, police force in a lot of circumstances to be out there by ourselves. We didn't have a lot of um, the agencies that you might have access to in a bigger center. So you couldn't just call someone to say, hey, can you come deal with this or can you come deal with that? You basically had to do everything. So speaking of your um, your mental health, as someone who served as an RCMP officer for over 25 years, you probably, I suspect, I'm just kidding. I know you have some stories about how your career affected your mental health. Um, you know, I titled this this interview Rising Up from Trauma because I truly know that that's a huge part of your story is rising up from trauma to actually talk about it openly. And that's hard when, I mean, I, I, I know how fearful you were of getting out there on social media and I can't even imagine that feeling of knowing that there could be people out there that see your face and think back to a time when you, you know, helped put them in a police car or convicted them of something like you know there's a lot of reasons people like you stay quiet so talk a little bit about the stresses of being a first responder and a police officer and how that affects your mental health and then of course if you can lead that into how you've managed to speak out about it that would be fantastic well first of all um first responder profession so whether you're talking about the police or or fire um emts um, military corrections officers, uh, doctors on the front line, the, the first responder professions have t- traditionally not valued mental health. We're starting to have conversations about it now, thank heavens, but um, it just was never valued. It was never talked about the, uh, the impact, all of the traumas that we deal with was, um, or the responses were just suck it up and deal with it and move on. And I was just as guilty of that as anyone else, because that's how we were taught to be. And then, um, if you bring into that, what you bring from your personal life, when you do become a first responder, how you've been taught to deal with emotion also play once you get into um, a first responder profession. So um, when you don't value health, you know what you don't know. And in my set of circumstances, um, it was two years after I retired that I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Um, my husband had been diagnosed uh, a year before that, and it was actually him that um, tricked me into treatment. And first, a little bit about um, PTSD. So post-traumatic stress disorder is, is a response to um, a traumatic event that you, that you may have um, been exposed to, seen, or been involved in. Complex PTSD is basically 
um, it means that you've had numerous. So if you take the policing world or the firefighter world or um, a military person, you know, the repeated exposure year after year after year of the different traumas that you suffer makes the mental health component of it that much more difficult to manage. And so I was, I was diagnosed with it and I was absolutely dumbfounded and I was dumbfounded because I thought it was only men that got PTSD. That's how naive I was coming from the world that I came in. I'll have that Hollywood version of PTSD, which is the, the soldier who's been traumatized by war, sitting on the side of a street, there's a mess and he's homeless. And, and, and that's all I ever thought about it. Um, so it's really sad to think, and that was in 2013, that that's where I was. And um, it manifests itself very differently from person to person. So my husband, um, I'm not sure if he'll appreciate this or not, <laughs> moody, short-tempered, um, a lot of just the, the symptoms that people would recognize quite easily. For myself as a, as a female, I manifested it very differently because I internalized everything. And um, I started to feel extremely exhausted, more than I normally did. I couldn't make simple decisions, you know, things like, should we have hamburger or should we have a salad for supper? Like every decision that I made was just mentally exhausting. So um, it, for me, and I think as women, we tend to feel we can do everything, right? For the wife, the mother, the, the sister, the daughter, uh, we manage the kids, we work full time, and, and there's just, it's just what we do. And I had never, ever taken a step back to go, whoa, just a second here, maybe there's, there's too much going on. So in my case, what happened was I actually had a complete breakdown on my first day of work. It was a new transfer. I had been transferred by this time, it was province number, province number four in five years. It was just transfer after transfer after transfer. It was my first day at the training academy and I was supposed to be teaching. I had met the employees um, that I would be working with. And when I realized I had to teach um, 15 manuals to a troop that was coming in, I had a complete breakdown. I just totally lost it and I had no idea what was going on or why and had to leave uh, work and was put off for three months. And um, it was the first time in my life, and this is what I, I, my diagnosis of PTSD, you talk about gifts from unexpected places. It's the first time in my life I realized I had never looked after myself. So there was no self-care. There was no, wow, maybe these things are having impacts on me. Um, the traumas that I carried um, were front and center when I woke up in the morning and I thought it was normal because of my job, right? And so these things, um, it, it just, it had shut me down. So the result, the, my mental health, um, I dealt with emotional lockdown, um, avoidance, ignoring things. Um, and the pressure for perfection when you're in the first responder field is brutal. You know, everything has to be perfect all the time. And it's um, mentally exhausting to have to function in that way and know that everybody is looking and waiting for you to do something wrong. It's, it's, um, and I feel sorry for, for um, our first responders today that um, have to carry that because there's an added component to it. It's a positive component in that we have, um, we have um, 
ways to make sure people are accountable and, and police officers have to be held accountable. But it's a very heavy, heavy burden. And the responsibility of someone's life, um, we take it very seriously. And it is a mental drain to know that the things you say or do can impact someone um, positively or negatively at that level. So it was, it was huge. And as a result of that, I went into uh, treatment at the Operational Stress Injury Clinic here in Calgary. Can I ask a question? So I feel like, you know, there's always that breakthrough story, that breakthrough story of when you finally hit rock bottom and you decided or the world decided for you, it was time to make some big changes. And you talked a bit about that, but I would like a little more information around that day at the office when you were tasked with these 15 manuals. Can you take us through a little more of how that actually felt for you and how you actually knew that you had hit like literal rock bottom with your mental health? So what happened was they, they opened up a cabinet and there were 15 manuals across the cabinet. And I, um, and they explained that I, you know, over the next six months, we will be teaching these manuals to the um, cadets in the training program. And in that moment, it's, it's almost like um, I separated from everything. My um, the sound, I couldn't hear anything anymore. And it's like I was wow. staring um, from a distance at everything. And then um, it was very short lived. And then the panic set in and my heart started pounding and my mouth was dry and I couldn't think. Um, so the tears started and um well actually they didn't start until i got outside i just told them i felt sick i said i think i've got the flu i'm gonna have to leave so it was an awkward moment of course um and then I. so just, you were kind of holding it together on the outside like someone in the room may not have thought anything was wrong with you thought that um something was going on but just they didn't even know me so they really didn't mm they didn't have the ability to go, wow, well, this is normal. This isn't normal. Um, right. Cause this was brown. You were brand new to Calgary at this point, right? Oh, sorry. This is in Regina. Oh, this is Regina. Okay. Sorry. I'm trying to like, okay. It was in Regina at the training Academy. And, um, so yeah, they didn't know me. They didn't. And I just said, oh, you know, I'm all of a sudden, I'm just feeling really ill. I have to leave. And that was the only comments and they were looking at me, which, um, very justifiably so. I was like, oh, kind of like, okay, you know, fine. And out I went and uh, I got into my vehicle and I was sobbing and I drove around for 20 minutes. But I think the key point, and, it's, and I'm glad that you asked me this question, is that I didn't know what was wrong. I had no idea. There was nothing in my head going, oh, I've reached rock bottom because my mental health is struggling. I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea what was wrong with me. And even back in that time, it would have been 2008. So we're talking about... Um, 12 years ago, um, PTSD was still not part of the conversation. So even when I was put off for um, three months, it was um, certainly people recognized I was overwhelmed and there was some mention of probably some of the traumas that I had been through. But even, um, even in the psychological um, world or psychological services, you know, it was still relatively new and the idea that it could manifest itself or that this was actually that I was, um, that I had PTSD. It just shows how the lack of education impact people, um, yeah. getting the appropriate care. How do you get the appropriate care if you don't even know you need it? And, and I think that's one of the big things that I, I tell people is, um, 
it's difficult to assess yourself. You know, people will say mm. on a stress level, how do you feel? Um, not always easy for people to, to determine that if you've always lived, right? How do you, yeah. you know that this is not normal if this is your normal? Yeah. So if you've been given her at 180 miles an hour for years, you, you don't necessarily realize that you're tapped out or that you're about to break. Exactly. You don't. Okay. Especially when mental health conversations don't exist in the mainstream. And they didn't at that time at all. You still didn't. It was still um, suck it up and move forward and um, carry on. And I, and I think, again, as women, we're harder on ourselves especially if you work in a, in a profession where um, it tends to be dominated by men, um, mm -hmm. we expect a lot more of ourselves. And I think we, um, we push ourselves that much harder because we want to be accepted and we want people to see that we can do the job. So there's a whole other layer that you um, add on to it. Right. So what would you say to someone listening to this podcast right now that needs some tips to support their mental health, like some things that they could do, they feel like they're on the brink of a breakdown, or they know they're giving her a little too hard, what would you say to those people? Well, I think um, one of the first things is to consider self care. And even with the question, if people feel feel they're struggling, if you feel you're struggling, it's actually good, because you're recognizing that something isn't right. And that's, that's a good thing. So then you can start and reaching out and talking to people. I think what I was very surprised about is the number of people that want to help anybody who is struggling with a mental health um, illness and um, reaching out and connecting and sharing um, are all things that are very beneficial. Typically mm. on, I don't, I think we're, because of this, when you reach out, you do have to be careful. People can inadvertently make a comment before you've even gotten to the stage where you're, where you're able to accept help. So, um, so I think there's two categories. There's the people that recognize that they're struggling and go, okay, hey, something's not right here. Um, I think I'm feeling overwhelmed. I think I'm feeling really tired and I shouldn't be. I need to reach out. And then mm -hmm. have the people that are struggling and because they've been in that state for so long, it becomes their normal and, and they don't always recognize it. That's where we as family and friends or colleagues, conversations with the people around us that we feel might and aren't recognizing it. That's why I'm out there is that um, sometimes it's very important to be able to say to a friend, gee, you know, you seem really tired and um, you seem like you're overwhelmed. You don't, you know, and, and you seem, you seem to be sad an awful lot of the time or whatever the, whatever the symptoms are, do you know, do you want to talk about anything or just getting the conversations going because we are still so stuck with it. Another recommendation that I have is, is writing. And that's what changed. Mm -hmm. That is what completely changed my journey is that writing allowed me to unlock my emotions and my feelings, things that I buried for years because it's a safe place. It's a piece of paper and a pen and you just let it go. And it was life changing for me. And that brings me to my next question. So um, how did you go from being in treatment for PTSD to, you know, in that place of just working on yourself and knowing you need to get better to actually taking your stories out to the world? 
Well, it, um, it was a very bizarre story. My therapist had recommended that I buy a journal uh, and I totally wasn't interested because um, we as police officers had spent, I'd spent years writing in a little black notebook <laughs> and I just didn't find writing did anything for me. But she um, encouraged me, just, she said, just buy it. And so I bought, I bought a journal and I stuck it on my bedside table and it sat there for three months or three weeks, four weeks. Um, but I woke up one night and um, had, um, it's a really bizarre story and it's a story that's in my book and it's a story that's on um, my, my mentor, Laura Munson, who's, who's the New York Times bestselling author who's mentoring me as I write my memoir. Um, she's got it on one of her um, blog sites, but um, words were just, I woke up and there was just words bouncing around in my head. It's a, it's a very odd thing that happened and it was scaring me and I didn't know why. And uh, so I looked over at my journal and I thought, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm just gonna write down the words that are in my head. I don't know why they're there. And those words were like, um, you know, cold and, and death and fear and um, just all of those types of things. And after about 20 minutes, I stopped writing and I looked down and I was dumbfounded to find that I had written a poem. It's a, um, a poem about all of my calls that I had been on that were traumatic, kind of blended into one. And um, I couldn't believe it. I went back to sleep, woke up in the morning, and it was still there on the journal. <laughs> so so I, I actually um, sent them to my therapist, who was dumbfounded, and she actually put the poems, asked permission, and the feedback that came back was incredible. So that started my journey, that this idea of writing um, not only was beneficial to me, but to the people around. And then the more I shared them, the more people I came in contact with. And as a result of that, you would be one of those people. And I also, um, I spoke last year at the um, First Responders Suicide Awareness Conference, and there was 800 people attending that, first responders or their families or therapists or whatever. And Lindsay, you were a big part of that, helping me to, to put that together. Um, and again, the feedback that I got from people um, when I shared my story made me really realize that I do have a story to tell. And um, I just want to change how people look at mental health. And that's where I am today. Wow. So you start writing, you have that little writing stint one night, and then what? I mean, I know that you've done some work with Laura Munson and her team through that writing retreat. So maybe take our listeners through what that has been looking like for you. And also, I just want to mention to our listeners that you will be, I guess, weather permitting and health permitting, you will be speaking to our group at our little private writing retreat here on November. 13th or 14th. I'm not sure what day you're coming out yet, but I'm really excited to have you come out and share, you know, this story and, and more to do with finding the bravery and the courage to talk about stuff that's impacted you, the trauma you've experienced. I know a lot of, I mean, obviously I talked to hundreds of women and, and many of them have expressed interest in writing a book, but they say things like, well, I got to wait till so-and-so's dead or I got to wait till, you know, like I can't talk about that stuff yet. And I'm just like, oh, those stories need to get out there. And I mean, yeah, you're afraid to hurt people's feelings for sure. But for you, I mean, you know, I think it's great that you found like a professional, you know, Laura Munson and her team. So just tell us a little bit more about that. Well, how that happened was, um, I had, um, so after that poem, more, more poems started to come out. My husband, who um, has been such a great support for me throughout all of this, um, had been um, encouraging me to talk to um, 
an author when we would go to chapters or a, or an indie bookstore just to say, look, see how they did it. See, and, and I was just never, um, I never felt comfortable, so I wouldn't. But on one particular day, um, he said, I just feel like you need to go talk to this woman. She, uh, an author, and her name is Laura Lovett. And she has written two books. She's a, she's a, a local author and also um, a psychologist. And so it's like the stars aligned. And I went up to her and I just said, you know, how do you get the ideas that are in your head into a book? We started to talk. And when I found out she was um, also a psychologist, I, I felt safe to say, oh, well, here's what I'm looking to do. And um, honestly, she wrote Laura Munson. She said, you need, to, you need to go here and you need to speak to this lady. So she wrote her phone number on a piece of paper and said, you need to call her. By the end of that day, I had uh, sent her an email. She had responded. We were on the telephone the next day. And um, oh, I, about six months later, I was on my way to Whitefish, Montana to one of her writing retreats. That's an it was an incredible story. And uh, prior to me going, she took a look at some of my, my work and just said, you need, you have a story and you can do this. So again, it's um, reaching out, being brave enough to step outside that comfort zone that we all want to stay in. And I think especially um, for those of us who are, are um, you know, 50 and older, as we're we're well established in our habits and learning things quite as easy as it did maybe 30 years ago. But what I'm finding is that um, there's so much potential to help other people around us and we have so much life experience to share. So I, uh, I went on my, my retreat to, um, they're called Haven Writing Retreats. If anyone wants to look it up online, she's got an incredible program, obviously, She's not running them right at this point in time. But I went through the first, the, the first program, uh, met um, and other amazing women from around the world. And uh, that led to me going last fall to Haven 2, which is focused more on someone who is going to be writing a book. And um, I have a team of three other women. There's the four of us that um, have stayed connected to her in the States, one's in Australia. And all of us are in the process of writing and moving forward with our, with our books. So it was an incredible journey. Yeah, and the importance of having a team of people striving for something similar to what you're striving for. So Cynthia is one of the lovely ladies who is part of my book, my most recent book, Find Your Voice on Social Media. So Cynthia and another, uh, another six women helped me make sure the book didn't suck basically <laughs> and looked it over for you know content flow spelling grammar uh, they added some meat to it places where they felt it was lacking they added their stories to the book um, so I mean for me having having you and the other girls as part of my book writing team was huge so what kind of stuff are these women doing for you to help you get your book done so um, oh gosh and encouragement is is a great part so what we do is once a month we submit um, a piece of material that we've written to each other. We all uh, work on editing it and we learned how to do that from uh, Laura Munson. And then, so we edit with kind hearts and uh, kind constructive criticism, send it back to each other and we keep moving forward. And we um, do Zoom calls once a month. And these Zoom calls, like I said, one person's in Australia, one's in California and one's in Oregon. 
and uh, where we go through the material and we share and we discuss ideas. And the whole concept behind the Haven Writing Retreats and the reason that Laura um, started them was exactly what you're talking about, Lindsay. Um, she's been writing for years and she just felt so alone for so long. And you to surround yourself with people that can think like, that can share your exciting moments and can share your, oh my gosh, you know, I'm terrible. What am I doing? I can't do this. Like, what am I thinking moments, which um, for myself, I have had many, many of those. Um, so it really makes a difference and it keep it makes you accountable. It keeps moving you forward and you just don't feel alone. So it, it's a huge part of the writing world if you want um, to be successful is to surround yourself with people that get it. And honestly, you you have people who are your friends and they love you for who you are, but they may not get um, the writing side of you. So you may tell them something and they stand there and their eyes are wide and they're going, okay. <laughs> and they're not getting your excitement, not getting your disappointment. Yes, it's huge. And you jumped on our Fab Five session yesterday. Um, and I mean, really, the same concept behind those events is just get women who want to do big stuff, get them together, <laughs> get them brainstorming together, get them knowing each other. And you've just really embodied that over the last, you know, over a year now that I've known you. So my next question for you is, well, last question for you is going to be how can people, you know, reach out to you and get in touch with you. For that, I wanted to ask you, how do you structure your life right now around your writing time? Like, how does your life look now versus a couple of years ago when writing wasn't necessarily like part of your goal? <laughs> I, no, it, it's, it's changed significantly because I've set time aside for it. And, you know, I think um, if you ask 50 different, 50 different writers, you're going to get 50 different answers. And each one of us will say, well, it's this way works better or this way works better. And I think you have to look at who you are as a person, what's going on in your life. Um, I'm retired. So for me, um, my writing schedule can be as regimented or flexible as I want it to be because I'm not, um, I'm not working full time and I don't have children. I try at least to um, write for a, a period of time once a day. I'm an early morning person. So that's when my my best material comes because my brain has rested over the night and I'm good at that. Other people swear by um, the later at nighttime, the better, you know, when everything is shut down for the day and then they're able to do their writing then. So I think it's, I think it's being, it's being flexible. And, um, and I think another key point is just um, don't get bogged down in the, with, um, just be, what's the word I'm looking for? Just be flexible. And if you're, if you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'd like to write a book and I don't know how to start or I don't know what to do or so-and-so still, still alive, <laughs> just write. Like, just get it down. It doesn't matter about the structure. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, whether the sentences make sense or, um, you know, one thing, one page you write is on one topic and another page is on a different topic. There's no right or wrong. And I think for myself, coming from a word, a world, the policing world where everything is exact, right? And everything has to be a certain way. I found that very difficult initially because I wasn't used to that. And it's like, well, there must be a set of rules and everyone must have to follow this and do this. And, and finally, I realized it's more about getting the words on the page. Um, then you can get into um, everything else after the fact, but just get the words down and let it be messy let it be all over the place. Um, just get it down and just write. Cool. 
That is so cool. So that brings me to um, another question that I, that I just wrote down while you're talking because I, I, I know I want to dive into this a little bit. Um, just for all the fempreneurs listening who are in that process of learning more about marketing, obviously the marketing landscape has changed drastically in the last six to 12 months. He had a conversation with a woman yesterday who said, my entire marketing strategy is not going to work because of COVID. So I launched my business right before COVID hit and I need to learn how to do this social media thing. And so for you, what is marketing? Like what do you feel marketing actually is? And then maybe back that up a little bit with coming at it from a, you know, the story about how you came to join Fempreneur Marketing School and why you were hesitant and what you think about marketing now versus what you thought it was then. Uh, marketing and um, was all about businesses and I'm not a business person. So it was that word business that terrified me, you know, the concept behind it. Well, no, all I want to do is write a book. I don't want this other part of it. Eventually I recognized that, um, you know, to have a book or a message or be an advocate or anything, you, you have to um, put yourself out there. So what I started to understand, and it was actually through the, the Fempreneur. So just to back up a bit, so people understand how I met you, it um, through another woman who had, and that would be Emma, um, Emma Harding from, um, or Emma Rushton now. I was looking for, um, I had been asked to speak at the, uh, the First Responder Suicide Awareness Conference that I mentioned earlier. Um, however, they were the people that started to say, well, do you have a business card? Um, you know, do you have photos? Uh, you should probably videotape this. And I was, I was panicked because I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I just wanted to talk. So, so all of a sudden people were telling me that I had an opportunity, uh, a story to tell and an opportunity to, um, get some messaging out about something I believed in strongly. So I was taking voice lessons from Emma and she suggested this, well, she, you know, I know someone and this is her name and she runs YYC Fempreneurs and, you know, I think maybe it would be a perfect fit. And um, as soon as I heard Fempreneur, though, thinking her panicked <laughs> and like connected with you, Lindsay. And so through our our relationship, um, I started to understand that that marketing is more about relationships. It's not about um, selling stuff. You know, I, I had it all under one umbrella. I had, you know, marketing and selling and all these things was all about owning a business and you go in and you buy an item. That's how much I knew about business <laughs> from that side of things to eventually through your program, the YYC Fempreneur program um, was amazing. And, um, and I'm saying that genuinely not um, it, it's, you were able to take someone like me who had no who had never wanted to have a business who still didn't want to have a business. <laughs> um, but I had, um, I had a goal and a dream and um, you took me through that and I was able to learn things that I didn't think I would ever learn. I still struggle with IT. That will be <laughs> the bane of me for my existence. We're all in that boat though, Cynthia, because just when you think you figure out Instagram, they change something. At least now I have people around me that can help me with it if I'm not sure about something. So, um, the transition was, it was a learning curve for me, but because there were other women around me on the Fempreneur, within the Fempreneur group, um, some were in my same, the same age group, um, some, some older, some younger, but I connect with everyone and we all have our struggles at different levels. So, so it just changed everything for me completely. And as a result of that, 
um, I was able to to design a business card and get social media sites up running um, and just continue to move forward with my my marketing and developing relationships with people. I await my memoir is just now in the editing stages. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, it's still going to be many months yet, but um, you know, I'm finally to a point where I actually have a social media platform ready for when that comes out. And for yeah. um, authors, book authors today, you have to have it. It's, it's not a, like you just have to have it unless you're writing a book and self-publishing it and you want to give it to 10 family members and that's your goal. And that's wonderful. There's nothing you know, wrong with that. I would like to get out to a bigger audience and, um, and get my message out all over. Yeah. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Yeah, you're hopeful. Uh, but you're more than hopeful because you put in the work. So you put in a ton of work. And one of the things that I don't think we've mentioned that is one of the first things we did together when we started working together after the marketing school and we launched your website, CynthiaHamiltonOrCart.com. And so for any of the aspiring authors, you know, listening to this, you, you need to start getting your writing out there before the book comes out. You need people to give you feedback on it. You need to know that there are people out there that are kind of cheering you on. And it's very good for accountability too, right, Cynthia? And what it does, and I use the same word, I was terrified. I wasn't just nervous about it. I was terrified. And I think you would back that up, Aileen. <laughs> I, I really was. Because as having been a police officer where we keep our lives very private, we don't talk about things, we tend not to talk about things. Um, I was really going out on a limb and it, and it, it did terrify me. Um, what starting up a social media site does um, is on a very small scale. When you start at stage one, you eventually realize that it's not that scary and that you will be fine. So yeah, so it does allow you time to become comfortable uh, with your message and figure out what people like, what they're liking, or, or maybe what they don't like to go, well, that's not very interesting or, or um, and be prepared as well um, for feedback that maybe you're not that happy about, but you have to learn to go, okay, you know, that's one person's opinion. So it gives you time to get comfortable with who you are and um, the messaging that you're putting out there. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for for being willing to share sort of an update of what you've been up to and, and, and to go back to the beginning and share all of that. That story is just so powerful and there's a lot more to it, which is going to be in your upcoming book. Um, so you can find Cynthia at Cynthia Hamilton Urquhart on Instagram. She has a Facebook page as well. Um, again, she's got some great writing up on her blog at Cynthia Hamilton Cynthia, what would you like to leave our uh, podcast listeners with as a final message? Just, I, I really want people to understand that um, you need to look after yourself. Don't be afraid to look after you because um, like the old story that they use on the airplane, put your, put your own air mask on first before you put it on someone else, is that um, we all have um, the um, responsibility to ourself to look after ourselves, and if anyone can walk away with something here with that it's just you know take time for you every day if you can um and um and be be a better you give yourself the care that you need thank you a few things before you take off 
Today's episode was brought to you by the Fempreneur Directory. You can find the directory at yycfempreneur.com slash directory. This is the place where you can list your business. You can have a free listing in our directory that gets hundreds of views each week and it is my gift to you. So I hope you go check it out and list your business there. We'll see you next time.